Welcome to the Build a Future podcast, where we host conversations that promote positive and exciting visions of the future. Today, we're talking with Gary Shang, the co-founder of Civics Unplugged. Gary and I connected over our shared belief that this decade, the 2020s, is a make or break for humanity, and that we have a lot of exciting work to do. On his end, Gary's working to train a new generation of leaders committed to universal human flourishing. Let's jump right in. Nassim Taleb had a quote that there's only one thing more addictive than heroin. It's a, it's a monthly paycheck. Like if you are employed, you have to make sure that what you say and do does not conflict with like your job security because losing a job and not having a source of income is like very scary for a lot of people. So those who have you know, financial independence or who are able to kind of make it on their own are not tied or are not like as constrained with what they can do and say. And I think COVID unlocked kind of a new new wave of these sorts of people, uh, people who can kind of work remotely or they can switch jobs relatively easy because they're no longer like tied to a specific job in a specific city. And so part of this kind of like counterculture, less centrist, if we're, if we're being simplistic, group is kind of emerging out of this like, oh, wait, I actually can say, like, I can speak up now because like I have the flexibility to because I'm not tied to my employer in the same way that I once was. Yeah, yeah, and of course, there's other you know trends that are are contributing to why people are more comfortable speaking up now, including that the extremes have gotten so extreme. It's becoming very hard to like almost like intellectually and morally justify being tightly associated with one side or another. Playing off of that, I think it's it's becoming like dangerous not to speak up as well. People are realizing like the consequences of where this like extreme polarization like leads, and inaction is actually you know contributing to the problem to a certain extent. And so those some, certain people who you know, like Jamal or David Sachs who like have positions and platforms to go talk about this stuff like feel comfortable doing so. Actually, they feel obligated to do so because they see what's going on and where it leads. Yeah, do you see how like a lot of CEOs have taken stances about like we are not a political workplace. Have you seen like Coinbase released a memo that got a lot of press, I don't know, maybe it was a year ago and Basecamp did as well, had a similar thing. So this this actually ties into the whole current events magazine fiasco as well. Like political extremism, fanaticism, you know, people's addiction to talking about politics, making it like a big deal of every, every part of what they do, it actually affects the ability for organizations to achieve their missions. What I sense is that people like Brian Armstrong of Coinbase and you know Basecamp CEO, they probably don't have a huge problem with people being like, I don't know, I'm sure the people that are the loudest were like progressive activists within their organizations. Uh, I'm sure they're okay with them doing that outside of work. But just from my experience, and as someone that was very much in that world, progressive activists can make everything about progressive activism. So then the, the mission of the company ends up being like co-opted into a political debate versus like the objectives and mission of the organization. Possibly. Right. And, and think about why the CEO has to make, uh, take a stand, right? Because you don't want to have to make employee spend their their social capital saying, hey, John, let's maybe not talk about this activist thing 
like when we're trying to get this project released. You don't want like the low level person who is just trying to like build good relationships with the fellow employees and trying to like climb in the organization to burn bridges just for trying to keep the peace or keep people focused on the mission, right? So, and I think this is what good leaders should, should do. And I, I think Coinbase is doing very, apparently doing very well. If you look at their, their stock price, leaders need to take heat. So I take, I, I give a lot of respect for those that are willing to do that. In this age where, you know, the base camp guy got so much heat, like Kara Swisher, et cetera, for banning political speech within his, um, within his company, company Slack. And, whether it's a good play or not, I'm actually very curious. Whether it helps or hurts uh, the company's bottom line, I'm actually very curious. But overall, I really do respect leaders that recognize that they, they have to take stances on what kind of how politics affects their company. We've been living in a world where our institutions at large, political, academic, media, corporate, have been in control of like the narratives and kind of they've been running the show for the last several decades. And COVID revealed like these institutions are actually not well equipped to navigate the territory of the digital economy in the 21st century. And, and so they're like slowly starting, well, rapidly in some cases starting to decay and trust in them is being completely undermined. And I think we're seeing that with, there's been some stuff about like the corporate training programs at Amex and a couple of like big corporations. There's like so much infighting and politicking inside these companies that the ship has not sunk, but like it's it's on its way there, right? Wow. I never thought of, oh, wow. Very few people talk about like these kind of controversial, like, like, you know, employee trainings in a way that as it relates to like the long-term integrity of the organization. And I think you're, oh, that's such a, interesting thread to pull on. For many reasons, I think the future will be built by small teams of very cohesive people that basically don't waste time fighting with each other, like, you know, political ideological battles. I think, especially when it comes to software companies, it's never been easier to just have like a group of like five to 10 people and build amazing stuff that millions of people use. And I just think about how you know Coinbase has gone to probably hundreds of employees, but like if he didn't deal with that situation at this stage, he would be really screwed when it could thousands, right? Because I think he made this like game theoretical analysis that he'll he can lose 10% of his employees by making this decision, right? But it's like the earlier that he made the decision, the better, right? Because then he can just only recruit people that are able to see a difference between politics inside of work and no politics inside work, right? And so when you think about like like a company like Amex, massive global firm, imagine if they took a hard stance against employees like being civically engaged uh, and bring, bring their politics to work. I don't know. I don't know how they would do that without having some kind of really unexpected long-term damage to their employee morale. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think it's interesting because they're like the financial incentives, like from the market would seem to want to push them in this direction where it's like, take a stance. Otherwise your organization's going to like not be functional. 
but I don't think people are taking a long-term view and there's so much infighting or so much kind of like not wanting to step on other people's toes because in that world, long-term like job security is like the most, seems to be like one of the most important things, right? Shifting from, if you're at Amex or if you're at Coca-Cola or any of these like Fortune 500s, you've probably been there a long time or you're choosing to go work at those companies because it provides like some sort of stable, like stability versus going to work at like a, an NGO or a startup or on some sort of frontier, right? And that, that, that's, that narrative shifting or that kind of the stability thing is shifting is people go work at Uber, they'll go work at Google, they'll go work at Facebook. But I think there's some, something about like graduate college or go to school, get a degree, go get a corporate job and like stay there. That has not completely permeated like the zeitgeist. So people still think that's a viable option. So they go to these companies and expect to stay there and they don't want to, but they don't want to step on toes because they don't want to lose their jobs. And like, okay, that kind of got diverted a little bit, but it's interesting, right? Because even if there's two people that there's one type of person that wants to just pure careerist and just wants to make more money every, every year, get promoted at a giant corporation or vertical or horizontally hop between different corporations both are not really incentivized to step on people's toes. And this is the problem with giant corporations that almost none of these people actually feel like a deep attachment to the, to the let's say, 10-year trajectory of 10, 20. Yeah, let's, let's say 10, 20. It just seems crazy in this day and age. But five, 10-year horizon, like how many people are that invested and that compensated to speak up? They're not. I think that's the thing. You could you could make the case that's not really true in certain tech companies or even like certain startups, but maybe like there is a sense of mission there that people are able to latch onto a bit more so than you know, the the corporate realm. So I think if the startup hasn't had its like unicorn explosion yet, and if if you see that I don't know if this would be the case in many situations, but like if you see like a weird employee training preventing you who let's say you have like 2% of the company or, or 0.5% of the company and uh, you could get paid millions if things go well, you are incentivized to speak up, right? Versus like a random Google employee or even like a manager or a pretty high up person, Google's not like randomly going to like 10X in terms of the stock price. And actually your salary will multiply faster if you just don't step on too many people's toes. If you're just like a corporate ladder climber, your best bet in making money for yourself is kind of just playing the game, right? Being friendly with everyone that could write nice reviews for you, right? I mean, we already know what, like, I mean, to use Google as an example, James Damore, James Damore got fired, right? I'm, I don't know. I don't know what payout he got from that, but I don't think that he was game theoretically thinking about, hmm, I can make more money suing Google. And then like, no, he, like the base case is that you get, you just get fired or you stagnate at a, at a big corporation for speaking out and saying uncomfortable truths. I think like if we if we kind of zoom out and think about like the the broader implications of this back to the institutional decay, there's a lot of like uncertainty about big companies like continuing to make decisions that are negatively affecting the rest of the world. And it's been this way for a while, but the 
not to like pull too on too many threads here, but like the recent case in Afghanistan, like the veil was pierced. It's like, oh, oh, this this incompetence runs way deeper than anyone thought. And it's like, oh, it's not just our government. It's not just our like academic institutions. Corporations are dealing with the same thing or like the Fortune 500s. And so while it's not like an immediate like rapid decline, people are realizing that that ship is not necessarily worth jumping onto and that there are better ways to go like make a difference or have some more go make an impact. And then those companies, like the new companies are being built, will eventually kind of override some of the uh, digressions that these these companies have made or they'll like fade into oblivion. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there, there's an interesting relationship actually between these giant corporations like Google, Apple, et cetera, and that maybe they're not innovating nearly as much as they were when they were just in the first few years. But the argument that they provide an incentive for startups to innovate so that they can potentially be acquired is an interesting one to think about because maybe these giant corporations have shifted in their in, in their in the roles of society in that in that way. Because like a interesting startup that works in the let's say productivity teammate team productivity space, right? This is an interesting acquisition for Microsoft, Google, potentially Facebook. Um, you could really just say any of these like big corporations. And that boosts the valuations because everyone's competing for, for the acquisition if it's actually a cool company. And thus, it really incentivizes entrepreneurs that really want to get a payout. So just so, something to think about that, you know, even if innovation is relatively slower at these big corporations, uh, maybe, maybe that's not even their role. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. While you're saying that, I was reminded of your reference to All In podcast. There was a, a conversation that a few weeks back where they were talking about the space race. And they were talking about this perception around Bezos and, and Musk. And Chamath, he put forth this idea that the issue in the world today, we don't have an issue of capital. Capital is not the constraint. The constraint is intelligent and effective people who are taking responsibility and like being a position to leadership. I completely agree. I love that bit. I listened to, it was a few weeks ago, I think. I totally agree. And th- this is why this could sound kind of like bullshit, but it's not. Like if I had a lot more money, I would still probably be doing something very similar to what I'm doing today. Because I, generally speaking, I think there needs to be a lot more extremely competent, ethical, blah, blah, blah people that are working on really hard problems. And there are far more hard problems than there are people that are willing to do that and willing and able to do that. And so I'm trying to like play a small part in addressing that gap of people we need and people that we have. Ironically, that itself is a wicked problem, how to address the leadership crisis. But capital is, is not the issue, which is, I don't, I don't think that's, it's not obvious to most people. Right. It's not obvious to most people. A lot of people just think it's, uh, it's a matter about pouring money into projects and right things will be solved. No, it's like, to me, it's like there's serious talent issues and coordination issues. I think those are thought experiment, right? You have a bunch of leaders that are like, are really awesome people. They think really clearly. Let's say they're terrible at coordinating with other leaders, right? It there's going to be clear deficiencies in our ability to address the modern crises that are so interconnected, right? So it's 
not just like we need better individuals. It's like we need better ways of coordinating those individuals. Let's say, let's call them one problem, right? Let's we need to create like a global network of of leaders that are really able to solve hard problems together. Um, and I think a lot of people are are trying to figure this out, but in my experience, it's been being in those sort of circles. It's like people over their fifty, like over the fifties, very very male and, and very white. I'm very cautious of adopting like a very pathological identitarian mindset, but the, truly the lack of investment in young people to be thinking in this way is terrible. One bright light in all this, and I want to have you kind of expand on like how you're thinking about the like addressing kind of the, the development of, of the next generation around this, this theme, but the, the question on coordination you know, 10 years ago, how do you, how do you start to do this? But, you know, technology breeds solutions and it breeds problems. Twitter has caused lots of like interesting challenges, affects lots of, people, lots of people's mental health in an interesting way. It makes like all very, it makes a lot of people very anxious, but it enables the finding of your tribe and of finding people who share some ideas of similar values. You can tap into these networks. You can begin to kind of coordinate solutions to these problems. Biology, Srinivasan has a bunch of like writing on this, particularly when it comes to like how to build like a, a network, like a, the network state and, and how that affects the development of new cities moving forward. People can coordinate online with people who share their values. They can use that coordinate, like use that group as like leverage to then go get a city to, you know, be willing to kind of accommodate that, that group of people. So they do all the coordination happens online, on social media, through some of these centralized protocols and then like transfers into the physical world. So it's like the physical world is like the like the last piece of this like puzzle of how do you actually build a new city or build a new country. And then in those places, we can kind of experiment with different sort of like governance mechanisms, policies that, at least in my opinion, are going to be the unlocking mechanism or the mechanism that unlocks like the next wave of innovation. Because given the state of the system right now, the incompetence that we're seeing across the board in our institutions, like we're like, we just can't get anything done. And we have to like override that somehow. It seems like local level coordination may be the trick. Yeah, I mean, uh, so throwing out some concepts here, you know, charter cities. Yep. Yeah, like Mark Mark Letter's work on charter cities is interesting. I just think that like, in theory, we have a lab, uh, America is a laboratories of democracy where all these cities are competing with each other for, they're competing for citizens competing uh, about what ideologies and like practiced ideologies work better. Ooh, this is interesting to talk about. It's like, okay, why hasn't that really been that effective? Because our political discourse is so grossly like noisy. And uh, anytime a city has some success, the reasons for that is are there's so much noise in explaining what there's like, it's constant propaganda, right? That you can't really make sense of why a certain city or state succeeded. It's very challenging, right? And but if there's a charter city that no no baggage of its of its history, and it produces all these like innovations and whatever they define as like a quality of life, it's hard to deny that you should listen to those people that lay that foundation. Right. I think 
crypto and blockchain is incredibly important for the future of civilizational development because so much of, of why we are not able to not able to coordinate effectively is because there's not a lot of transparency about how decisions are made and uh, people don't feel like they have sufficient amount of power. It feels like it's not clear that the people that have power have a good reason to have power. We, we haven't gotten enough opportunities to rapidly experiment with different types of governance structures. And so this is why DAOs are really interesting because you know there is no one way to run a DAO. It's just code, right? And so we're actually... One thing that's really exciting about what we're doing uh, the rest of the year in Civics Unplugged is running our first experiments with a Civics Unplugged DAO. We're working with some of our friends at the, at the Ethereum Foundation and thinking through how we can help our community of practice that runs decently without this sort of governance, coordination, accounting support that is afforded by a potential DAO. But we want to see if this can just supercharge our ability to do what we want to do as an organization and help our individuals in the organization achieve their goals. And the reason why this is interesting to our friends at the, at the Ethereum foundation in, in that, in that space is because crypto has, has so far been dominated by people that, you know, it's basically a way to get Lambos, right? It's just kind of like how many DAOs are, are really just, the vast majority of who they who they serve are just people that want to get paid for something uh, versus it's like hyper financialized right now but i think the what what we're seeing kind of what you're alluding to is like there's actually a lot of like green field here to experiment with how organizations run and how we incentivize organizations to actually achieve specific outcomes like there's a lot of nonprofits like alleviate homelessness or whatever and like they actually don't have an incentive to go do that. But if you know, can set up the organization to be structured in a way where the reward is based on like the outcome that was set up, that was set up to achieve, like, oh, maybe, maybe we can get there. You know, that's perhaps a, a pretty complex example. But no, I, I think it's a good one. And I can see that in the coming years, hopefully, you know, thanks to a lot of experimentation and, and thought leadership of Civics Unplugged, et cetera, there just becomes a new standard for what donor like what types of organizations donors donate to, right? So think about like, I'm idealistic about this idea that we can really improve the whole like nonprofit space by creating organizations that are are so much more transparent and effective than other organizations uh, because of certain tools, platforms, processes that they use that donors come to expect this as like, a given or they won't give the money at all. I think that this goes for most technologies, I'd imagine. Organizations that are really comfortable with a certain stack don't want to change the stack that they use unless they're kind of forced to because the market, or in the case of nonprofits, donors are saying like, if you don't if you don't adjust to this, I'm giving all my money to Civic Supplement. Right? Yeah, this is sweet because it means that once again, this transparency and like these new mechanisms of financing will unlock like a new wave of innovation in nonprofits. So like more work will actually, more problems will get solved because the organizations that are comfortable with the status quo, with their stack, they don't want to change, like are going to go away because people are going to stop giving them money. <laughs> the vast majority are just going to go away. Look, I didn't know anything about nonprofits three, basically two and a half years ago. And I've gotten to know a lot of 
program managers and former program managers at different nonprofits. A lot of nonprofits don't do Jack. I think, look, Civics Unplugged can do a lot more than um, what it's doing right now. But like, we're trying, right? We're, we're, we're actively like, we can do better. And this is why we're going to experiment with a DAO uh, to help us coordinate and track things a lot better, incentivize people more. But, you know, COVID really, there's probably already like a massive graveyard. I'm not like celebrating this, but just th- th- this is what happens, right? Like, COVID was a huge disruption to so many nonprofits who were not able to adapt. And, you know, a new generation of nonprofits already ha- that were able to survive the pandemic are kind of raising the bar for nonprofits. And I think maybe the, one of the next standards for nonprofits was related to how transparent the organizations run and how engaging it is to be a donor. So imagine like your, your activity as a donor is tracked on, on chain. It's like your donor membership resume is tracked on chain natively. And so just ideas that we're throwing around for our DAO is you know, kids are proposing projects that they want funded. What if the way that you fund it is like an NFT exchange? And it's like, you're not doing it for the NFT, but the, the NFT is just a way to track that you believed in, in, in this young person before everyone else, right? So a great example that I like to bring up that my co-founder brings up is he knows like a dozen people that apparently threw Obama's first fundraiser. So think about if it becomes a common expectation that donors at like dinner parties and stuff are comparing their like their donor like resume. And so you're collecting all these NFTs from different forward thinking nonprofits that know that this is inevitable. This is the future. And that, you know, just one-off stories. Oh yeah. I was an early backer of this nonprofit. It's like, show me the proof. It's like, it just becomes like a common expectation. Exactly how that, how the culture changes very fast. It's, really unclear, but I think it starts with nonprofits creating such a, a next level experience for the, for the donors that they're just like, Whoa, why these other nonprofits I'm on the board of, like, you need to step the fuck up. Otherwise I'm going to spend a lot more time in civics unplugged. It's interesting because like then, then it becomes a status game for the contributing nonprofits is already a status game for like the ultra wealthy. It's like, Oh, I'm giving to this. It really is like, you're trying to one-up each other at the dinner parties. Yeah. And if you can like prove, if you can give people like more, more insight or granularity into like the people that they support and the organizations they support and the outcomes of those organizations, it's a lot cooler to invest in or to like support or back civics unplugged because you guys are doing X, Y, and Z versus meals on wheels in San Francisco. That is, hasn't been doing anything different for the last, you know, 50 years or just, same with them. I'm not saying like that's not something fun, but 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 also if Meals on Wheels really adopted new age technologies and you could see your donation actually impact you knew you could see exactly what people that were fed, like you you, you could see like the tree of, of your impact from, from your donations, like that would be really addicting. You can set up organizations in like sort of prizes in a way to just incentivize like solutions much better than you you can now. Like imagine X prize, but for your local community, it's like, hey, this street is messed up. Like this sign needs to be replaced. Boom. Hey, community is going to gather. Everyone's going to put $5 in and like whoever wants to fix this can go solve it. Like it's a proof of work, right? Right. And, and so it's kind of funny that this is not as common as it should be, 
the civics unplug team is very blunt about human nature, very clear-eyed about human nature and what donors want. And a lot of this is through trial and error and being like surprised or disappointed and, you know, sort of like, well, we, we thought so much about like in an idealistic sense, oh, what would a young person want to do? It's like, okay, yes, they want to like develop themselves, blah, blah, blah. They want to be some part of something cool. They want to have fun. Right. And that also actually applies to donors. They want to be some part of something cool, fun, and that they can name drop cool people that are part of it. This is like base level instinct. So you got to speak to that. So if there's like a pothole that needs to be filled, and if I donated like whatever amount of money and I get to have a part ownership of this NFT or something that, that was like related to filling the pothole, that's kind of cool, especially as adoption of crypto explodes where it just becomes like commonplace to like put in your link tree or whatever, like your NFT collection uh, or like maybe especially your civic NFT collection. Then we see a re-engagement of local, local civics, especially when you pair that with like micro tasks. It's like people can on local street money and prizes to go like fix things and solve things, for example, or even like voting, right? Imagine like, what a new like voting stack might look like for a city where they want to experiment with like, Hey, we want to do a digital voting platform. Everything's on chain. Like what's preventing cities from like actually implementing something like that and enabling their citizens, like track the policies that they vote for and like the outcomes of so of such policies. There seems to be a huge gap in like that space as well. That is super interesting. So, I mean, there's just, there's just practical reasons why voting for like elected officials will stay paper ballots for a while, at least. I think so because majority opinion about distrust of also a lot of experts are very sketched out about entirely internet-based voting. You could almost jumpstart it. I totally agree, right? So also like if you create platforms that help policymakers make better choices, like in Taiwan, They have all sorts of like civic voice engagement platforms. So for example, when they wanted to figure out exactly how they wanted to regulate Uber, they asked the public. And so they, then they were able to to figure out where public sentiment was and have actually like interactive comment periods. I'm really like simplifying this, but the public was very happy with their ability to shape public opinion and the policymaker was was grateful because think about it from the policymaker's side. Theoretically, policymakers should want to get reelected by being a good representative, like a authentic representative of the people. Also, if you are able to point to how you made the decision in that it was based on people's actual opinions, like a, like a representative group, no one can blame you for just listening. You know what I mean? Think about it, just a leader of like a, of a startup. If I personally disagreed with the leader of that, or I was an employee, I disagreed with that, with the CEO's decision, but I knew that most of the company was on board with that decision. I, I would be less annoying about it. Right. Cause I'm just like, you know what I mean? But I think that sort of data that, and also ability to, to share your, your, your opinion about a lot of different things which is beneficial for the, the constituent and the policymaker or the leader, the fact that that's not, there's not more opportunities to help both sides is kind of ridiculous. Oh, I think this is, this is like, we're at a moment in time 
which is very, very special because like nobody cared about who their their mayor was or their governor was up until COVID because they realized the implications of like their state government. And I'm hopeful that people are going to be willing to get more involved and more engaged on their like in their community politics because yeah, they, they actually realize like, oh, there's this it does actually matter. I think it's hard for people to intellectually agree that uh, disagree that local politics matters. Again, going back to like being very blunt about human nature, I think there just needs to be a way for, let me just be blunt here, for your local civic engagement to be tied to your social status. And like, honestly, like something, something related to like your reproductive success. I'm like, I'm being super blunt here, but like, why do a lot of people put their like their crypto punk as their profile picture? Social signaling, right? Like I'm I'm rich, I'm in the in group, I'm forward thinking, right? So if it becomes like a common expectation that anyone who's anyone, anyone who's anyone is collecting all sorts of NFTs related that, that are associated with real, like helping local communities. And you didn't check that box. I, I look at your, you know, I look at your civic NFT collection and it's like bear. I don't want to work with you. It may not be that I don't want to work with you, but I don't want other people to know that I'm working with you. Because there's this transparency that gets like revealed around like how you contribute to your community and to your company and to like the organizations you're a part of. And then it's like, because right now there's not a lot of insight into like, you're like, oh, hey, I worked at this nonprofit. I worked at this company. If I like did this thing in politics, like, Nobody actually knows what you did, but if you can like anchor that to like concrete, oh, I worked on this project or did this thing, then people hire you based off of that. Like it's like the new credential is like the projects you've been involved in that are tracked on chain. Right. I think a lot of people, what a lot of people don't admit or maybe they don't fully realize is that they probably don't really trust what people say about themselves on their LinkedIn's. I think we are just like we're going to expect a lot more from nonprofits and how they report and how they track their impact. Right. I mean, an individual is just like in its own way, like a corporation, right? Like if you're looking at like five different people that you could be co-founding a company with and almost everyone has adopted this new best practice of tracking their, I don't know, civic and otherwise like contributions to the world on chain and another person looks like they're it looks it looks impressive on paper, but they could be embellishing like the hell out of it, out of it. You're probably going to go with a safer bet that the other options, right? So this is really cool because what are some like kind of insights from those conversations? Some of them include like let's be blunt about human nature and and design systems and it's not just best practices. It's like it's like it's like a common expectations. Right. So like it was sort of like an unspoken thing, but like, but, and I haven't been on the dating market, but like, it's really hard to date without a good Instagram. I'm not going to like define what that means. Right. But you know, if you're a dude, like girls will look through, I think probably both, both ways, and I'm not saying has to be just man to woman or, you know, I mean, just like people that are dating, young people are dating are looking at your Instagram. Often they're looking at your LinkedIn. And again, human nature, right? This social signaling for reproductive success, right? And it's it's like, it's like at the end of the day, like subconsciously, you're so influenced by that. 
we're not going to create this like critical mass of local civic engagement through just intellectualizing about it. Because I've tried that. Everyone's tried it. Well, the last 200 years uh, or just ever since America's founding, people have been writing books about the value of local civic engagement. It's, it's, it's not a matter of like listing out, like bulleting out reasons why it's valuable. It has to be like a common expectation that anyone that you associate with that claims to be high value is tracking their contributions on chain and they are, they have, it, it looks sick because of just how frequently they are contributing to their communities and how it really explodes is people competing over how much good they're doing. Right now, that's not happening. Right now, it's happening in very perverse ways. It's happening in ways that like you're, you're tweeting like extremely divisive stuff that may get tons of, of retweets, but it's contributing nothing to like collective sense-making. It's contributing very little to, if, if at all, to people's human flourishing. Maybe we can do another, another one of these where we riff on the inverse of this concept, where this is like, how are you engaged in your community is almost like a social like credit system. And what, what are like, what's like the opposite? What's the inverse of this look like? Because it's like, oh, that sounds sick. But it's like, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is tracking everyone's contributions. <laughs> Why don't we touch on that briefly right now? So there's, I love this because you're pulling out things that are just at various points in the last year and a half, I've been thinking, I've thought a lot about. So I'm optimistic about America's future. If we continue to be a country that centers on liberty and voluntarism, just like where you're, you're not forced to do something, right? It's, it's like culture that is, is shaping people's behavior. And ideally the culture is, is getting better and better at incentivizing people to support their own flourishing and the flourishing of the world around them. The other model is a state directed like social credit system where you're actually, you're not able to ride a train if you didn't pick up trash every week, something like that. And so, yes, we should be afraid of systems that coerce people into doing things. But I also, I also think that that's just long-term that it's a lot easier for corruption to infect top-down systems. I think history is littered with examples of that, right? Versus what we want to see in the Liberty American side where systems are, it, it's more like giving you credit. Oh, sorry. Well, social credit. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's in, in the same way that you would just voluntarily adopt using Instagram instead of like being forced, being forced on you. Cool, man. Where can people find you? What do you want to plug? TikTok, website, Twitters, Instagram. <laughs> you, can, you can go to my website, garysheng.com to learn more about me. On my website, I say, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, if you want to just like stay connected so we can be aware of each other's journey um, and maybe work on something together. This is awesome. Thanks for coming on. Awesome conversation. Dude, thanks for, uh, thanks for making the time and excited to see what we do together. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share your favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time. 
Go Bills.